Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Gordy Johnson. Gordy is the frontman for Big Sugar, the legendary Canadian rock and roll band that plays a unique combination of reggae, the blues, and heavy rock. Gordy is leading his power trio on a tour, celebrating the deluxe vinyl re-release of their 1993 album, 500 Pounds, by playing it in its entirety, along with other hits from their deep catalog. Here in the GTA, Brenton on stage is very proud to present Big Sugar at The Rose on Thursday, March 21st, and full show info can be found at BramptonOnStage.ca and in this episode's show notes. Welcome, Gordy, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I am good. I'm in the uh, in the beautiful green hills of the Texas hill country just outside of Austin, Texas right now. And of course, Austin is not new news. Everyone's flocking there. What is the state of the nation and living in Austin, especially for a Canadian? Uh, well, I've been here 20 years, so the, the Canadian-ness doesn't, uh, doesn't have that much effect down here. But, uh, you know, we still know where home is, and uh, it's, it's been too many months since we were uh, up in Canada to play some shows. So we're really, really looking forward to sinking our teeth into this record. I've had the, the fellows have been down here rehearsing with me for a couple of weeks and dusting off a lot of older material i tell you the the songs from the 500 pounds album you know a lot of those if we ever played them on tour it was 30 years ago i I only have a vague recollection of how we might have performed them back in the day so it's interesting to breathe life into something that's really just been I mean, I listen to the record like like anybody else does, more as a uh, as a spectator or a fan. I put it on and go, "Wow, that was a really good band back then." Uh, so it, it's been quite a challenge to to resurrect this stuff and make it vital and of of this moment. And I understand that apparently now it's an intergenerational version of Big Sugar. Gordy, do you want to talk about who makes up the band today? Yeah, uh, well, there's me. I guess I represent one generation, <laughs> the the earliest, long-standing one. I have a bassist, a really good friend of mine down here in Texas, Anders Drera, who actually I was following him on on the Voice over COVID. We got watching uh, watching too much TV, and my daughter wanted to pick. I have a teenage daughter who wanted to pick the show, so. Uh, yeah, we ended up watching The Voice, and there was this good-looking cat from Ottawa, Ontario, like all spiff and like hair all nice and tight, wearing a suit, playing a Les Paul. I was like, you got a guy on The Voice playing a Les Paul? Well, I'll have to check this guy out. And he sang a reggae song. I was like, oh, hang on, now this dude, this is my dude. So I started voting for him on The Voice. Oh, gosh. Yeah, well, it turns out he was already following Big Sugar on on Instagram or something, Anders Drerup is not a name you hear every day. So uh, anyway, I, I saw his name on our Instagram account. I thought, that can't be the same dude that's on The Voice. Is that? That can't be the same guy. Turns out it was. So I said, hey, man, we're we're voting for you over here at the Johnson house. And he kind of freaked out a little bit because he'd been a big Sugar fan since he was a kid. So, man, we got to talking and it became really close friends. Our families are really close. I mean, we babysit his kid, you know. And when uh, I was 
you know, converting the band back to a power trio and thinking of who to involve in it, he was just the natural. I mean, he's we're not next door neighbors, but he's like my next door neighbor. He's a guy I talk to and see every day. I was like, hey man, do you want to come out and do Big Sugar with me? Of course, he's yeah thrilled to do it. Uh, so then that's so that's the next generation down, and then another generation down from that. Uh, I've got a drummer who's 21 years old from Winnipeg, Manitoba, but from where I was born, brings it full circle. Uh, Root Valak is just very natural, super talented musician um, who came to my attention about a year and a half ago. I don't even know if he was 21 when he joined the band, but. Yeah, man, he, he impressed me over the phone. I heard his drumming over the phone and went, I've been booking a flight to Winnipeg. I got to see this dude. So, uh, yeah, there's three uh, three generations of Big Sugar right there. That's great. Now, I don't know, based on that, if this is the headline or not, but rock star Gordy Johnson is turning 60 in May. Will you be transitioning to pickleball and uh, winters in Florida? I'm pretty sure I won't. <laughs> Instead, what I've done is uh, is booked an entire year of tour dates, and uh, yeah, no, I won't have any time for pickleball. <laughs> well, you, Gordy, you have in the past said that you were so hip it hurts, whereas today you joke that your hip just hurts. <laughs> Where are you getting this stuff? I th- it's like you can hear my private conversations with Mrs. Johnson or something. Oh, Lord. On, on that note, as you prepare to lead Big Sugar on yet another tour, and literally you've been on the road for decades, how different is touring in 2024 versus 30 years ago, let's say 1994? It's very civilized. Like my stamina for playing shows on stage has only increased the other hours of the day the required to travel and you know trying to get enough sleep and all that there's not a lot of partying going on but it's very civilized we enjoy some red wine and finding a good italian cafe to drink our coffee i prefer to drive myself i bought myself a super swanky new jeep wagoneer i'd rather just drive myself i don't need a big old tour bus the crew takes care of business. They've got the truck and they've got all the gear and they go all on their own schedule. You know, we love our we love our road crew. But uh for the band there's just three of us, so you know, we'll ride in the in our own ride with Mrs. Johnson and take her time and get up in the morning, eat breakfast. We we approach it more like you almost have to approach it more like a sports team, and I don't mean like a nineteen seventies hockey team. I mean like <laughs> Like professional athletes today, you got to eat a good breakfast. You got to stay limber and stretch and stay hydrated and well-rested and rest your voice during the day. Although uh, when we're driving across the you know Canadian prairies, we do sing a lot of sea shanties in the, in the truck to keep our voices limber. That's good. You got to keep the voice limber. And on that note, Gordy, how is your voice today? What do you have to do to protect or maintain it after such a long singing career? Uh, Like I said, um, you know, we we took up the discipline of, uh, not joking, you know, like Newfoundland, traditional music, sea shanties, um, folk music, things of that nature with harmonies that, that we've worked out. A lot of stuff we work on, we won't necessarily put in the show. 
But uh, I I recall recently we did a show in Montreal with Government Mule, and we were all sharing the basement of this theater. All the dressing rooms were down there. And Big Sugar and our entire road crew, everyone in the road crew has a part to sing as well. And we launched into 10 minutes of whatever, 12 verses of Barrett's Privateers. And the entire (laughs) dressing room area just froze. Everybody was like, what the hell is that? You don't expect to hear that coming out of a big sugar dressing room. <laughs> Everybody's gathering around the door going, what the, what the hell just happened? It's like they just dropped off 10 fishermen and put them in the basement of the <laughs> Metropole in Montreal. Well, that's one thing you don't expect to see in the dressing room of a big sugar concert. But I understand also, Gory, that backstage you have a crying room. What is a crying room? <laughs> Wow, this internet thing. Gosh, you did your research. The crying room. You know, um, there's always a lot of buzz and activity, but when you've got your crew and band and all the all the people involved in a show, there's a lot of coming and going in the dressing room. And we're not, we don't have any sort of uh, cast system in the band. It's not like I get a star dressing room and everybody else has to slum it and then the crew has to eat out in the hallway. We've never... We've never been like that. It's, you know, everybody's, everybody who's going to sweat through their underwear today gets to enjoy the wine list and the cheese tray and everything, you know, so everybody gets to share a space, but we always keep a quiet room just where, where several dates into the tour, you know, if my voice is getting tired, I'll reserve a little quiet space so that there's no other conversation. I don't play music in there. It's just a quiet, dark room. If you need to go and have a little cry, you go in there. It was originally called the crying room because I always bring a steel guitar on tour. I'm actually going to use it in the show for the 500-pound set this tour, but I haven't used it on tour very much. It it just comes out on the tour. I said first thing I do is get to the little crying room, set up a steel guitar, and play steel guitar for most of the afternoon. So people hear that sad, lilting sounds of crying steel guitar in the other room. So the crew started putting signs on the door, the crying room. So if you need to get emotional, you go in there. (laughs) Well, it's good to know you have a, a safe space and a space to kind of reset. Now, Gordy, let's talk about your connections to guitarist Jack White, who is perhaps best known from leading the White Stripes. He has been a huge fan of your 500 Pounds album since back in the day, as he bought his original copy at a Big Sugar concert in Detroit in 1993. He has stated that this album, 500 Pounds, is the best blues-based record to ever come out of Canada. Now, this testimonial is an important connection, as Jack is also the founder of Third Man Records and was the impetus behind this brand-new deluxe vinyl re-release of 500 Pounds. Gordy, what is your relationship with Jack White? And how did this vinyl re-release project come about? Well, I'm as surprised as anybody else. Like that news <laughs> kind of hit me as a, a shock because I've never met him. You know, I've I've met a lot of almost everybody whose music I I admire, but he was somebody I'd never I'd never encountered. I didn't think I'd ever cross paths with him that I could recall. Turns out I met him in like 1993. He was a Big Sugar fan, and he played a show with us in Austin in the early 90s. I would I would spend a lot of time down here and play with uh, Chris Layton and Tommy Shannon of uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan fame. They took me under their wing. 
when I was younger, and I'd come down here and play big sugar shows with them all the time. There was a band called Goober and the Peas that were playing a show with us. They're like a psychobilly, like scary country band, you know, and the, they had this drummer, oh, I was he like 19 years old or something. This kid, black hair and like white goth face makeup and just killing the drum kit. And we, and we stood backstage going, oh man, this dude's commitment level is so high. And it was just such a a vibey, you know, at the Continental Club, Austin, Texas, watching this psychobilly band before Big Sugar. We're like, ah, oh, these guys are great. And I, you know, we talked to the kid after the show. Well, it turns out that kid was Jack White. And that just came back and hit me like a lightning bolt <laughs> 35 years later. Well, wait a sec. That, hold on now. Oh, that guy? Oh, that guy. Oh, yeah, I know that guy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's it, it's a good thing I, I make a point of being kind to, to everybody, great or small. You know, and it's, you have time to be kind and, and accepting of people and complimentary to what they're doing. And, uh, yeah, man, so that that was the first inkling that, that I had that you know, he'd written in a tour diary and posted it on the internet saying, yeah, I got to meet the guy from Big Sugar. Back in 1993, I was like, whoa, whoa, you got to. Hold on a sec. I'm not that hard to meet. And it wasn't long after that we got a cold call from Jack's cousin who runs a record label saying, hey, Jack's a fan, man. We want to we put out your record on vinyl. I like, oh, okay, am I getting deep faked here? What's What's going on here? <laughs> Come on now. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty mind-blowing. I, I have not had a chance to meet him, but uh, I'm I'm touched that somebody who has such a high standard for e- absolutely everything his career has touched, he's had a very, very high standard of creativity. So I, I think, to me, that that would be the greatest artistic compliment you could get. Plus, now we're on the same record label as Charlie Patton, technically. So I'm in good company. You're in good company. Now, Jack White performed your song, Ride Like Hell, live during his concert in Toronto in 2022. Gordy, were you aware he'd be playing it? And were you geographically anywhere nearby to be able to jump in and join him on stage? Oh, hell no, man. I was in, I was in Austin, Texas, watching Netflix. I was like on the on the sofa under under a plancha with a with a chihuahua. You know what I mean? I was like, I was just being at home, chilling out, and my phone started to blow up. I'm telling you, like, zing, 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 zing. Every notification sound on my phone was like going. My wife's like, "What the hell is going on out there?" And I picked up my phone, and yeah, sure enough, I had homies at the show and then the word started to get out that jack just went into uh ride like hell during his during his concert and decided then i had to get that confirmed so i started shaking the bushes and we have mutual friends through jack's bass player dominic davis and uh, yeah now he confirmed like oh yeah dude we listen to that we listen to that cassette in the bus all the time it's like the fact that y'all listen to it on cassette i think says says Everything I need to know about you people. That shows you the era for sure. Now, Gordy, when you look back at your story, so to speak, born in Winnipeg, grew up in Windsor, you did your final year of high school in medicine at Alberta, and upon graduation, immediately moved back to Ontario. 
But my understanding is while still in Windsor, that's when you saw your first rock show crossing the bridge over to Detroit to see Rush at Cobo Hall. Yeah. Hemispheres, baby. Yeah, man. Blew my mind. I, my mind was ready to get blown anyway. I was a huge rock and roll fan, especially a Rush fan. And uh, we bought tickets to go to the concert, and our parents, ah, I was 13 years old at the time, and all the parents, you know, all the Euro dads, some Portuguese, Italian dads are like, no, you guys are, what, what, this is a rock and roll concert, no, 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 nobody's going to the rock and roll concert, no, no, you don't do this, no, we're not, we're not, <laughs> like, well, man, we were three bummed out little dudes, gosh, we were just crestfallen. And my dad finally chimed in and was like, well, God damn it, I'll, I'll take them myself. <laughs> what? My dad? Like, Chrysler executive, former Air Force dad, like the straightest dude on the planet is going to take us to Rush. It's 1977, remember. He's going to take us to see Rush. And so back in the day, huh, we went over to Detroit, went to the arena, three little dudes with tickets. My dad didn't have a ticket. He's just a guy in a, you know, <laughs> a dad jacket walked. He just walked in at the, at the gate. They're checking our tickets. And my dad was like, oh yeah, no, I'm just, I'm with, I'm with them. I'm with them. I'm just bringing the kids. Oh, it's a dad bringing his kids to the concert. Sure. Come on in. Sure. Come on in. Like, oh yeah, no, I'm a dad. What was he? 34 at the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come in. Try that now. You don't get in without scanning a barcode on your phone, getting your bag checked, going through a metal detector. No, it was 1977. Come on in. So my dad sat. Somehow there was a seat he could sit in, and he, or he stood at the top of the aisle. I seem to recall him with his arms folded. And uh, you can imagine when Rush, before they come out and the house lights go down, and the entire arena turned into a giant hot box, and the pot smoke, just this enormous cloud. You couldn't even see the stage as it started to rise to the top of the arena where we were sitting. And I thought, oh, dear, this is where my dad <laughs> pulls the plug on this whole endeavor. No, he was cool, man. He just had his arms folded up the top of the aisle and thought, well, that's a funny smell. Well, okay, well. No yeah, man, three hours of of rush, and my dad was was a champ. He he let us do that, and that that set me on my life's course. Really, that's great. That's dad of the year kind of stuff. That's when you have a good father. Now, Gordy, you actually made your move to Toronto as a bass player. That's true. Yeah, I'd been a bass player really from the beginning. When I was about twelve, thirteen years old. I picked up a bass guitar. Everyone else in my neighborhood had an older brother who had a guitar or a drum kit. I was the oldest brother. I didn't have anything. No other kids playing music in the house. So I was relegated to four strings of a guitar, a borrowed guitar, and you get to play the bass. It was like I got the short end of the stick, you know. But I really loved it. And of course, a Getty Lee fan, Paul McCartney, I thought all the coolest dudes are the bass players, you know, all that. Yeah, this is great. I really got into it early age. And I was working professionally before I started high school. I was getting paying gigs 
the summer before high school started, I was playing in an Italian wedding band and in a in a jazz like big band, getting paid gigs. Man, when you're starting to collect a paycheck, uh, playing music before you start high school, high school takes on a curious insignificance. <laughs> What's you been making? I was making a hundred, hundred fifty bucks a night. Sometimes like two hundred fifty, three hundred dollars a night for a big Italian wedding. You got fifteen hundred guests. They pay you pretty good. Yeah, I'm a teenage kid. All my friends are working at McDonald's or delivering. They're they're got paper. They're paper boys. They're delivering newspapers to people's front stoop. It's like, oh hell no. My parents are like, well now maybe you need to get a paper route just so you understand. You know the responsibility. I'm like, I'm responsible to know four hours of music by Friday night. I'm, I don't have time for a paper route. Oh, hell no. I was dumping them papers. I delivered newspapers. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got started pretty early. Now, when I came to Toronto, I was playing the bass, but uh, someone, I had just started to play the guitar because I wanted to sing, write my own songs. I had never really occurred to me before. So I just started to play the blues a little bit and getting into different kind of music, getting into blues. And some friends told me about blues jams were all the thing in Toronto at that time. We're talking about the mid eighties. There was a blues jam almost every night where you open mic, you could get up and play a song or play two songs and they'd hustle you off and put up the next guy. But you got to see everybody in the community play because well-known people in Toronto at the time would also come out to the jams and sing a couple songs and they'd put them on at the end of the night and, so everybody would wait and sit through all the jammers and you'd saw the, you know, the big famous blues guys get up there at the end. So it was a great education. The first jam I went to, they got me up and nobody knew me. So they put me up at the beginning. I'm like, okay, there's this new kid in town and put me up to play the guitar and I played my song. And uh, the band leader said, okay, you just, you stay there. And they got someone else up and I played along with them. And I got someone else up and I played along with them. And I played the I played the whole night. I was like, well that that's pretty cool. I said, don't tell anybody I'm not a guitar player. <laughs> this is pretty great. So I went every week and they did that every week. They like, Yeah, yeah, you get up with the band. And then I realized, oh, hold on now. Y'all don't hire a guitar player. I'm gonna do that about a month. I thought, man, you guys you're not hiring a guitar player for this. You're just counting on a free guitar player <laughs> week. Well, one week I had a gig. I had to go back to Detroit. I had a gig with Lazy Lester, famous blues guy who was living in Detroit at the time. And I had already had a reputation of playing the guitar back in Windsor. So I I went back to Detroit and played with Lazy Lester. And so I said, hey, guys, yeah, I, wa- I won't be here next week. I got a gig. I got to go do. And they're like, well, what do you mean? Who's going to play the guitar? I said, Oh, I don't know. Maybe you'll have to hire somebody. <laughs> so the following week, I got paid. <laughs> and I started getting paid and being paid to be there all the time. So that that worked out pretty good. You had to learn the business skills, and you had to make this transition from bass to guitar. Gordy, you are now the backup band for noted trial singer Molly Johnson. How did this lead into recording your first Big Sugar album? <laughs> Molly Johnson, God bless her. Uh we had been a backup band in Toronto. We hadn't we weren't really a band. 
like I wasn't the lead singer of the band. I was kind of the leader of the band, but we're working with seasoned professionals here, Terry Wilkins, Bucky Berger, people like that. There, so not like I was telling need to tell anybody what to do. And we backed up Hawk Walsh from Downchild Blues Band, and we backed up reggae singers, Calypsonians, blues artists would come to town. We were kind of the backup band on call. We played with Lowell Folson, and you know, any blues guys would come to town. We'd get hired. Reggae artists would come to town. We'd get hired. So we had quite a reputation as a, as a backup band. So Molly, who had been playing a very sophisticated kind of jazz. She'd been singing with really sophisticated dudes. She had a gig opening for Ray Charles. Now, I don't know if her regular guys couldn't do it, or she thought, maybe I need something a little more urbane, like a little more swinging. So she got Big Sugar to play. So my first gig with Molly, we learned her songs, I seem to recall, at her apartment at the Cameron House, put on our suits and went to Ontario Place Forum and <laughs> did two shows opening for Ray Charles. I was like, okay, nothing like just jump right in there, folks. And we had a ball, man. We loved playing with her. Uh, she's so funny and engaging, and we really enjoyed taking jazz standards and bringing them around to an era that was you know, invoking an era that was more like jazz as a, as dance music, because it was originally, you know, you had to be able to, it was swinging, you had to be able to dance to it. So we kept it, we kept it really just cooking underneath her. And that, that took off like, that took off like crazy, man. We, we were gigging all the time with her for a couple of years there. We were the hottest ticket in town and we could play, we could fill a bar sold out at 10 o'clock and then they would clear the place out and they'd resell tickets for the midnight show. I was like, no one was doing that in Toronto, you know, playing at Clinton's or the Rivoli or the Horseshoe. You know, that, that was, that was crazy at the time. And so she got signed to Hypnotic was the name of the record label. They wanted to sign her to Hypnotic to do a record with, with us, this jazzy bluesy record. But by the time it, by the time we were supposed to start recording, I'm talking like a space of a couple of days, she signed a record deal for her rock and roll band, a group called the Infidels. I don't think anything happened with that, but she signed another record deal with another record label. It was a way bigger, way better deal, obviously, you know, and bailed. But she's so charming as she talked to the head of the label, Tom Tremuth, and said, but look at Gordy's young, he's beautiful, he's he's a great singer, and I'm like, I'm a great singer. What? I ain't I ain't saying shit yet. Hold on now. <laughs> I sing about like one song a night. Now you'll do fine. You're gonna go back to the Cameron House, you're gonna write some songs, and you're gonna be you're gonna be in the band. You're gonna be the band. Like I'm Molly, what what you give me like days notice on this. So she bailed. Okay, I'll come and I'll sing a song on the record. So she came and she sang like two songs on the session or something out of 12 songs. And Tom Tremuth, Hypnotic Records, to his credit, went along with this harebrained scheme. I was like, okay, here's a guy I've never heard sing. I have no idea if he has any charisma. I have no idea what's going on. Molly just charmed the pants off the guy and 
let us make the first big sugar record. Talk about unlikelies. I went to my room in the Cameron house and thought about all the old blues songs I could think of and kind of rewrote them and monkeyed around with them till they felt they were original enough. And uh, that's how I got the accidental rock and roll career of Big Sugar began. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. We got Chef Susur Lee, Body Breaks Hal Johnson, comedian Paul Reiser, Michael Pinball Clemens, our UN ambassador Bob Ray, Maple Leafs captain Rick Vive, Dragon's Den's Wes Hall, and TVO's Steve Pakin. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24 7 365 wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to torontolegends.ca. And of course, now you're off and running. And, and what a great time in the 90s because of the power of music videos. So maybe you want to talk about the influence of much music and, and the power of videos in your career. Yeah, videos. I mean, at that time, it's well known. They really started to supplant radio as the main way that you got exposure because they were national, right? Like it, that went across the entire country. Your video got played one time. It got played in every house in the country, whereas you could get played at a Hamilton radio station, but not a London radio station. Maybe one station in Toronto, but not the other three. So radio didn't didn't really catch on for us. We didn't fit. We're talking about the grunge era too, right? So we didn't we didn't look like other kids. We didn't sound like other kids. We weren't about to be the next big thing. So nobody really paid attention to us. And our first video was for a song called Sleep In Late, which actually, if you watch it, you'll notice that we're, there, we're not lip syncing. We recorded the audio with the film. So like an old blues kind of performance, it had to be legit, right? Which drove everybody crazy. Nobody wanted to go along with that plan except me. But we pulled it off and uh, that got a little bit of much music at the time it was a video station. So it got a little bit of play on there and we got invited to the much music party at the end of the year our video got nominated for something what best black and white video i don't know <laughs> best video of young guys trying to be old guys i don't know so i was wearing an armani suit go to this gala because we were always suit and tie guys i come from playing jazz clubs went to the party and there was a young cat who's just started working with Hugo Boss, a young Hugo Boss executive named Robert Souza. And he came up to me at the party and grabbed me by the lapels of my suit and went, who are you? Why are you dressed like this? No one's dressing like this. What, what's your name? What's your band? What do you, what do you, and I'm like, who is this guy? Like, I, I, okay, how introduce yourself? Like looking inside, looking inside the lapel of my jacket to see whose jacket I'm wearing. I'm like, it's our, it's Armani. He goes, Here's my card. I work with Hugo Boss. Come see me in Yorkville on Monday. Really? Okay. I just I was just digging the groovy party. Okay, sure. So Monday I went around Hugo Boss and talked to Robert for a couple of minutes. It turned out he'd been working. He'd had a position to Hugo Boss for about fifteen minutes, and he was trying to shake. He was trying to shake the bushes. Marched me into the president's office and said, "All right, this is a new band, Big Sugar, and this is what this guy wears every day." Look, trust me, boss. You can, you're not. You don't see anybody like this. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, sure. I didn't tell the guy what to say. 
Next thing I knew, I had a deal with Hugo Boss. Like I barely got a record deal at this at this time. My videos have been played on the TV about three times, but I got a, I got a wardrobe endorsement with Hugo Boss. Well, on that note, it's been 25 years, but you were named to the Toronto Star newspaper's best dress list, primarily for your Hugo Boss suits. Do you still fit into your Hugo Boss suits? Oh, do you still, come on, Andrew Applebaum, do you fit into your early 1990s wardrobe? Nah, come on now, trick question. Well, here's the thing, though. I've got uh, I've got three kids. My 15-year-old daughter is a little fashionista, but my other two kids are both in their 20s, and they're both, you know, 6'1 six, six, and 6'3". Man, they have raided my closet. They're the sharpest dress cats out there, I tell you what. And every time they come home, they rifle through my Hugo Boss stuff. So I still have lots of it left. And uh, up until a couple of years ago, I still fit in all of it. Man, in my 50s, I'm, I still fit in my Hugo Boss. And I pay props then. That's a good thing. I definitely don't fit into mine. So it's good if you can. But it's best when you can pass it on to your kids. That's even better. On the note with videos, Gordy, internet true or false? The guitar that Alex Lifeson uses on Rush's Farewell to Kings album is the exact same guitar that Gordy Johnson carries around in Big Sugar's video for Digging a Hole. That's true. It's the same guitar. Not a reissue, not a guitar exactly like it, but it's the Xanadu guitar is the guitar on the Hemivision record. It's on most of the record. I, I used a few other guitars on that record, but mostly used Al's guitar. The talk about the most unassuming, humble, generous, lovely, funny cat. I met him at a banquet or some fundraising things a couple times, just periphery around Toronto, probably through Molly Johnson, who knows everybody, and introduced me to to Al, and I didn't realize the Al that I was meeting was the same Al from Rush that I, you know, 14-year-old me would be losing his mind. And I ran into him at a recording studio in, in Toronto. They were making a record, a Rush record at the time, and we were, you know, scrappy kids going there to borrow a piece of equipment or rent it or something from the studio for our, like, garage studio. We were making our record in no air conditioning to open a garage store to get in the studio and close it behind you. And there was Alex Lifeson, and he uh, gave us a tour of the studio, showed us all the gear. Oh, there's Neil practicing. There's Getty over there. Hi. And I'm, I'm, what's just, what's happening? Said, this is, wow. You know, sparks are going off in my head. And I saw that big white double neck in his guitar rack. I said, oh, man, you don't believe this. You probably hear this all the time, but, man, I... I saw you play the guitar and on the Hemispheres tour when I was a teenager. I was 13 years old, man. I saw you play that guitar. and Ah, it's amazing. You still have it. That's that's fantastic. And you said, yeah, but it's really heavy and it kind of messes with my golf swing. So, I don't know. Why don't you take it and see if it brings you good luck? Look, I've known this guy for about 15 minutes total is how much time I've spent with a guy. It's not like we're lifelong chums. He's heard me play jazz standards around Toronto. And he gives me Excalibur. He gives me this guitar. And I took it to the studio. Man, we just put it on a guitar stand with a light on it for about a week. I just looked at it. I was like, I'm, gonna, I'm, too, I'm too scared to play it. I'm intimidated. I don't, 
what, what should we do? I don't, should we use it? Maybe we shouldn't use it. I mean, we should keep it in the case. Now what should we do? Uh, and we were a bunch of the way through the record already that we were making a record called Hemivision. Man, the day I plugged it in, we ended up re-recording most of the guitar on the record with that guitar. So it, uh, it features very prominently. It ends up all over that record. Well, since I mentioned Rush's Alex Lifeson, let's drop some more big names. When you talk epic rock and roll blues bands, you have to talk ZZ Top. Lo and behold, Billy Gibbons is not only a fan of yours, but is also a friend. Well, there's another cat who's very, you wouldn't think so, but man, he's very humble. For someone as famous as he is, I mean, he's arguably one of the most famous guitar players ever, and a hero of mine since I was a kid. And he was a fan of Ride Like Hell and 500 Pounds. He'd been listening to that since the early 90s, so he was aware of Big Sugar. And then when we started the band Grady in the early 2000s, I came to Texas and started the band Grady. And then I started hearing from friends, hey, um, I'm out on tour with ZZ Top, guys were in the crew with ZZ Top, said, hey, you know ZZ, they're playing the Grady record before their show every night. They play the whole Grady record before they go on. That's pretty freaking cool. Okay. Somebody pinch me. Like, I've had a lot of nice serendipitous things happen, but that's pretty cool, man. When ZZ Top, like somebody who you absolutely idolize, they're playing your record before they go on stage. That's pretty hip. Man, I was at the studio. I was working at Willie Nelson's studio at the time, and I don't remember what record I was working on, but my phone rang, and I didn't recognize the number. It was a Houston number. Like, oh, who's that? And I said, hello. And the voice on the other end, didn't have to introduce himself. The voice on the other end says, uh, we can talk about the guitar tone on why you so shady. Now, are we using Marshall amps? Uh, guessing some kind of big tube amp. If you got a minute, now that, oh my God, I know who this is. I don't even have to ask, how did you get my phone number? What's just happened to me? What's just Hey, guys, take a break. Smoke them if you got them. I got to talk to this dude, apparently, about the guitar tone on it. And he talked to me for about 90 minutes about, was I using pedals? What is it a Gibson guitar? What kind of an amp is it? And so, yeah, my, my mind's quite blown. Excuse me, I'm, I'm quite famous at the moment. I'm talking to Billy Gibbons. He's an enigma. You can't. You can't always just call him up. Like it's not like I call him up to go bowling or something. But I'd say we're friends because I get I do get a Thanksgiving text every year. And you know when COVID happened, remember that day that it hit kind of everybody? My phone rang and it was Billy Gibbons and he got me on FaceTime because he was in Vegas. They were about to start a like six month run of shows in Vegas was easy which got canceled, but he was already in Vegas. He can't get a flight anywhere. They're stuck in the hotel, but he's got, he's got in an SUV and he's just driving around Vegas with his phone, FaceTiming me to show me deserted Vegas. I talked over about an hour looking at post-apocalyptic Vegas. He's like, man, if they left all the lights on, but there's nobody home. <laughs> <laughs> I 
a phone call and an experience you never expected. That's for sure. I, I have, I uh, can also say that there was a night I did a recording session with him. And after the session went back to his place and he made me green tomatillo uh, chicken enchiladas, 2.30 in the morning. He made a plate of enchiladas and got me a cold Modelo Especial. Wow. I've like now I've, I feel quite special. That is the definition of friendship. Now, ZZ Top and Billy Gibbons are, of course, big, but you don't get any bigger than the Rolling Stones. They are huge Big Sugar fans. How'd you get on their radar and how'd you end up opening for the Rolling Stones? We actually had a mutual friend. I was really good friends with a, a cat in Toronto in the early days by the name of Clive Blueshaw, and he's since passed away, but he was an older fellow than me, like by double. A Brit, I was, of course, charmed by his whole, you know, that British guys at that age just loved the blues. And he had an enormous record collection. He wasn't a musician, but he liked to dabble in guitar, and I showed him a couple of chords on the guitar, and I left some acoustic guitars at his house for him to just plonk away on, and he couldn't really play, but he just loved the blues, man. From when he was a kid in the early 60s in England, he'd been collecting records and had the most amazing blues record collection. So I would always go over to Clive's. I could spend an afternoon at Clive's house listening to records, making tapes of records, listening to stories about seeing Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and all the blues artists he'd seen. Now, I'd known Clive several years before he leaked out that he was also a childhood friend of Eric Clapton's, like next-door neighbor, childhood friend, still, like, best friends forever, Eric Clapton. Clapton was in town. Did I want to come and meet Eric Clapton? I'm like, I'm going to say yeah. So Clive and I went to see Clapton at uh, Maple Leaf Gardens, and after the show, the three of us sat at a table for about an hour talking about Charlie Parker. Well, okay, Clive, I believe you now. I believe you. Yes, you are friends with Eric Clapton. There's just three of us here. No security, nothing. There's no party. It's just three dudes at a table. Fantastic. And Clapton's in a gem. What a gentleman. And so it wasn't too much longer after that, Clive started to tell me that, well, the lads are going to be in town for a month rehearsing. The lads... I didn't know who the lads were. What turns out the lads are the Rolling Stones, and my presence has been requested. You've been summoned, basically. So put on a suit, show up here, be on your best behavior. You've been summoned. Why? I don't know. I, I don't know. Turns out Keith was a fan. Turns out Charlie was really a big fan. Charlie loved 500 pounds. He loved the, the mix between like an Art Blakey jazz record and the cream he just loved the hadn't heard music like that since the 60s he thought big sugars just just loved it so presence requested i went to the rolling stones rehearsal like a couple of days in a row and sat on the drum riser next to uncle charlie for like 10 hours i just sat and got to watch him play drums at the Rolling Stones rehearsal, which is, there's not a lot of rehearsing that goes on at a Rolling Stones rehearsal. I don't know if you know this. They play a song, then there's about an hour of everyone milling about, going about their business and fooling around. I don't know what they do. And then they kind of, it all kind of collides and all of a sudden they're playing another song 
Then, then it all dissolves again. And Charlie just sits at the drums. They kept bringing us trays of espresso. And we talked about fashion and art and automobile design and jazz. And just we hung out with Charlie. And I hung out with him quite a bit. And every time they would come to town, presents would be requested. And I'd go hang out with Uncle Charlie. Fantastic. And of course, I, you know, met the other cats too. Ron Woods, it was a trip. And Keith, of course, is a real character. And Keith actually stole CDs out of my bag. <laughs> I saw him clandestinely reach into my duffel bag and nick a bunch of Hemivision CDs. Now, I brought the CDs to give to them, if, but I didn't want to like walk around and say, hey, here's my CD. Hey, here's my CD. I thought, I'll bring them if it comes up, if Clive mentions it, as I figured he was going to. At least I've got one for Charlie. No, Keith nicked them. <laughs> That's another great career-defining moment. Uh, did we get to play with them? Yes, eventually we got to. We did a show with them in Toronto. That's not the highlight. The highlight is Keith stealing records from my bag. That, to me, is that. there's the, there's the real jewel in the crown. That is the jewel. And Gordy, apparently the pre-show meal that the Rolling Stones have laid out is, is nothing like the spread of food you were used to while on tour. Well, actually, you know, Big Chick, we don't, we're not sufferers. We, we live pretty good, actually. It wasn't that different. <laughs> what was different about it was that everyone's encouraged to have some. The crew, the opening act, the opening act's crew, the truck drivers, everybody eats from the same table. Everybody eats and drinks from the same from the same bar. Again, the, you would think there would be a caste system in an organization like the Rolling Stones. Not so. Very, very welcoming, unassuming. They gave us full lights, full sound. Do you want a carpet on the stage? Or we can take it off if you'd prefer to not have it. Here's your video director. You're going to be on all the big screens. Play for an hour. We love this song. We love that song. Wh- what? They're just... There was none of this, like, you're the opening act, you get two lights, play for 30 minutes, and get your ass off the stage. No. The Rolling Stones treat you like you're the headliner, and whatever they can do to make you comfortable. I thought, that's better way to do it. So we've always been. Oh, I mean, we were, we were welcoming to opening acts prior to that as well. But that really was confirmation for me that, you know, be nice to people. Be nice to this young band. Make sure they have some beer and make sure they have some towels and make sure they have full sound and lights. If I catch my crew dimming the lights on the opening act, I get irate. It's like, light them up. What? That doesn't make me look better because they're in the dark. Come on, light them up. I can't hear the guitar. Turn their shit up. Come on, man. Like, I've always been an advocate for our opening acts. And look at some of our opening acts. Bedouin Sound Clash, The Trues, Nickelback, all those bands that opened for us have gone on to be pretty special in their own right. And I personally know from from also having been done dates with Nickelback that they're they're also very unassuming. You'd think they could be jerks to the open act. I've never seen them do that. They they seem to be, and I don't know. Hopefully that. Hopefully that rubbed off because I got them their first case of beer as an opening. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, man, it doesn't it doesn't hurt to be nice 
to everybody because eventually it's, they're going to be somebody. And you know what I mean? I don't know. I'd rather just keep that thing going on, just pass on good music and good attitude and, and love for, for music. We're all here doing it because we love music. You know, otherwise, what are you what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here otherwise. So if we're all supposed to be here, then let's all take part, you know? It's a great sentiment. Very universal. Doesn't hurt to be nice. Now, Gordy, you've also played with the brothers behind the Black Crows, Chris and Rich Robinson. How did they enter your orbit? And were they brothers more like Jason and Travis Kelsey or more like Noel and Liam Gallagher? Oh, I would tell you that the Robinson brothers are like nobody else. They definitely got their they got their own thing. And uh, I can definitely go on record as saying I'm one of the few people that has consistently never played favorites in either camp. I love them both the same. I don't treat one differently than the other. I mean, if they're being assholes, I'd say y'all are being assholes. Come on now. <laughs> Like there was a long period of them not even speaking to each other. They were on tour still together and the feud was raging and you could see everybody like scattering of someone's in Chris's side and someone's in Rich's side and you don't cross lines with that. And I'd be like, oh, that's some bullshit. Let's go to the Continental and have a beer and listen to Red Volker tear up a Telecaster. Come on, you fools. Let's go. Look, I got this reggae record. I got to play for you. The two of you. Come on now. Sit down. And... The love between brothers is not something for you to analyze or judge. It exists whether you can see it or not. And uh, I, I think they, they do have something that's, I mean, they're, they might as well be conjoined twins, really. I mean, very different people, but you don't get between brothers. And that's another serendipitous meeting with them. Chris Robinson had been to see Big Sugar when 500 pounds came out, he heard 500 pounds, bought it, ordered it, special order, uh, as an import down from Canada to Los Angeles. And we played in LA. He was at the show. I didn't meet him. I just heard, hey, the dude from the Black Crows was at your show. I was like, really? I'm watching Big Sugar, like that's circa 94, probably five, perhaps. And uh, yeah, Chris Robinson was at our show. Cool. Years later, I was living in Toronto. My wife wanted an ice cream bar. I was living, we were living in Little Italy. She wanted an ice cream bar. I was like, I got nothing in the house. Baby wants an ice cream bar. So I walked up the street, walked up to College Street, and uh, just went in the corner shop, you know, in the corner of our, our street. And I got, <laughs> while I'm by this ice cream bar, I recognize this cat from Sony Music. As you know, everybody in the, in the industry at that point, I think it's about, 1999 or 2000 and the guy from sony records like oh my god you won't believe this i'm actually in this neighborhood looking for you i was like well you knew i'd be here but i just happened to be bugging my wife on ice cream bar it's like no no seriously man the black crows are in town and they the first thing they said was hey do you know that guy from big sugar can you get him to come to our show i'm like he did not yes so i went home with the ice cream bar and i said well baby Put on your dancing shoes. We're going to go see the Black Crows. Eat your ice cream and we got to go. <laughs> I went and saw the Black Crows and they were fantastic. I'd never seen them before. Loved their, always loved the music. Ah, this is great. And we got invited. Isn't that, We should at least, uh, let's just, I will knock on the dressing room door. I don't want to impose. Let's, let's say thanks. And, you yeah, know, I mean, I'm sure they got lots of people to see and stuff. 
Man, we knocked on the dress room door, and Chris Robinson, and wearing a big feather hat and freaking cape, for God's sake. I mean, he was in full, full rock star regalia. Opens, he's the guy opening the door, not a security guard. Chris Robinson opened the door, put his arm around me, and it was like separated at birth, man. Brothers from a different mother. And we were hanging out with those dudes till about seven in the morning, listening to records, watching VHS tapes of Freddie King and Johnny Winter and Humble Pie. We loved the same music. And it was just the beginning of an amazing brotherhood with those dudes where I've like I've been with them in some form or another all the way to, since then at every turn, every turn of events, every record and band breakup and replacing dudes. I've been I've got last minute phone calls like, Hey, our bass player didn't show up. Can you can you fly to New York? Like now? Yeah, I I can and I did. And I played with them in New York. Oh, uh, we're rehearsing with a new drummer, but we don't have another guitar player. Can you come and rehearse? Yes, I can come and rehearse. Hey, Chris isn't going to be at rehearsal for a couple of days. Can you sing? Like, yeah, I didn't sing for Black Rose rehearsal. I got to sing at a Black Rose rehearsal, man. I got to sing the whole set. I got to be Chris Robinson for a day. I tell you what. Yeah, that probably makes it look really easy. I'm a good singer. I mean, I I can sing pretty good. Hey, it's hard, man. It's like trying to sing like Otis Redding for 90 minutes. I don't know. How, he's got some range, and it looks easy when he's strutting around and swinging the mic stand around. I got newfound respect for Chris Robinson. I cannot even explain to you. You try and walk in another man's shoes, boy, I tell you what. It's it's hard. And it all started with Mrs. Johnson's ice cream bar. I know, man. She needed an ice cream bar. Otherwise, I'd have just been in the house. How would I have known? Gordon, you've been great with your time. Let's wrap up by asking if you're a big social media guy, and if so, where can we best follow you? Oh, you know, I'm I'm the guy that takes care of most of it. So, yeah, of course, on Instagram, Big Sugar Music, and on YouTube, of course, Big Sugar Band on YouTube and Facebook, all of them, you know, all all the little widgets. I try to post stuff every day and keep folks engaged. Oh, hey, you didn't mention Joe Satriani. Joe Satriani, uh, who I toured with extensively. Now, I'm going to drop in big names here. Joe is a, Joe's a super good friend. Joe is a, like, send funny memes and text kind of, kind of best buddy, and we tour the world together. I love Joe. But recently, unprompted, over the internet, on the Instagram, same thing, man. My phone started to blow up, and there was a link to an Instagram post of some interview Joe was doing, and he was talking about me and Eddie Van Halen at the same time. He was talking about comparing me to Eddie Van Halen. And I went, hold on, well, what's the comparison? He's a really good guitar player, and I'm not, but we both play the guitar. What is it? I'm taller than Eddie Van Halen? What is the, what, where is the comparison? We both eat pizza with a knife and fork. Turns out that's where we're the same. No, man, he's like said some beautiful, beautiful things about my guitar playing being unique. And, and you know, I'm paraphrasing, but they're talking about Van Halen in that, in that same sentence. And I thought, oh, okay, that's it. I can retire now. I'm good. I never have to play the guitar again. I got this, I got this Instagram post right here. I could just keep reposting that forever. You know what I mean? So that, <laughs> that's a good one. Oh, that wife is good. 
when you yeah. get that comparison. It just shows you there's a good side to social media too. You got some good out of it. Yeah, that's true. So again, Brampton on stage will be presenting Big Sugar live at the Rose on Thursday, March 21st. And you can get all the show info at bramptononstage.ca. And for everything Gordy Johnson and Big Sugar, you of course want to go to bigsugar.com. Gordy, great to meet you today. I want to wish you continued success as Big Sugar hits the road once again. It's been a real treat talking to you, Andrew. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to have you. And to the listeners, on behalf of Gordy Johnson, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.